You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. We're told to ignore our feelings sometimes, ignore the past and memories which are in our blood. But I wasn't taught that. I was taught to connect to who I am. And once you connect to that, you're, you're awakened. This event was presented in partnership with Rising and Malthouse Theatre. The Wheeler Centre wishes to advise this recording includes discussion about human bodies in collections, which were taken from their cultural places against the wishes of First Nations communities. Thanks for coming out on the coldest day of the year so far. <laughs> it, uh, it shows a level of um, passion and uh, interest in uh, what is a very important uh, subject. So thank you very much for that. So uh, welcome to Return to Country Repatriation and Resilience, brought to you in partnership with the Wheeler Centre and Malthouse Theatre. Before we start, we'd like to acknowledge that we are meeting today on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of this land on which this event is taking place. And we acknowledge any First Nations people here tonight, and we pay respects to elders past and present. How to frame this, let me think. Oh, I've written something. Um, First Nations artists, uh, for First Nations artists, so much of the craft of storytelling is listening. Listening to each other, the world in context, trying to extract meaning where it is often elusive. It involves listening for stories that faded out centuries ago during the decimation of invasion, the theft of land, the persecution of culture and the attempted erasure of all that was held sacred in living memory. And so that was the challenge confronting some of the storytellers that we have here tonight. Before we get started, I should introduce myself. My name is uh, Daniel James. Um, I'm a Yorta Yorta man uh, with connections to Gunnar Kunai land. I am a um, a writer of sorts, a broadcaster of sorts, um, every now and then I get invited to this mighty place, this mighty institution called the Wheeler Centre. And so it's a pleasure to be here tonight. And so I thought I would uh, introduce our guests in, just to, just to make sure I don't get in trouble, in um, alphabetical order. <laughs> and so I'll start off with uh, Jason Tamero. He's a proud Yorta Yorta man, passionate about his people and culture. That is evident in all the work that you do, Jason. Um, he's worked with many of Melbourne's most iconic performing arts companies, museums and festivals. As a producer, he supports his people's creativity by building frameworks that complement cultural expressions. And he's also the co-director of The Return, which is on now at the, at the Malthouse. So please make uh, Jason welcome. John Harvey is joining us from somewhere that is a lot, lot warmer than it is here. During the sound check, he said it was 30 degrees or something like that, which is 25 and a half degrees warmer than the feels-like temperature here. Uh, John is a uh, writer, <laughs> director and a producer uh, from the Torres Strait. He has Torres Strait on English descent. He's a creative director of independent theatre and a film company, Brown Cabs. John has created a dynamic state of film, including as a writer and director for short films, Water on the ABC, out of range on SBS, and he's the co-director of a feature documentary and docu-series, Off Country, for NITV. Um, he has works all over the place. He was one of the co-producers and the director of Kutcher's Kuriyoki docu-series, 
as well as several short films for uh, documentaries um, and also short film screening at international film festivals and across the national broadcaster. He is the writer of the play The Return. Uh, please make him welcome. And my cousin sitting to my immediate left left here is uh, Kimberly Moulton. She is a Yorta Yorta woman and writer and curator. She is currently senior curator, Southeastern Aboriginal Collections at Museum Victoria and an artistic associate for Rising Festival Melbourne. Kimberly has researched Southeastern cultural material held across the world with an interesting connection, repatriation and relationships between the belongings and communities they are from. And on that note, you just recently returned from, um, from London on such business. Yeah, so if she falls asleep halfway through tonight, it will not be because the conversation is not interesting. Um, please welcome Kimberly. Okay, well, this is such a heavy subject matter, um, so we're going to treat it with the reverence that it deserves. Uh, we're not going to take ourselves too seriously, but it's just going to be a free-flowing uh, conversation. Um, it is something, repa repatriation, we are talking about it backstage, we were saying that it's actually a, um, an unusual term for the, for the business of returning our ancestors to their, to their homelands. Um, I guess, Jason, I'll start with you because you, you've been involved in the business of uh, repatriation when you worked for North, Northwest Nations Mob um, back in the day. First of all, tell us how you got involved in that and tell us about what the work involved back then and what it involves back now. Uh, involves now. Oh, wow. How do I get involved? Um, I guess got involved because it's... Uh, Sadly, it's part of our history. Um, as a young boy, I guess growing up, you, you play football with your mates and play cricket and you do, do things with your family and friends and all that type of stuff, and, which was normal for every kid. But it was also this taboo darkness space that we were in also as a family and this was to do with repatriation and funerals and I guess death which sounds pretty bad but um, and it can be but it's also quite spiritual so it wasn't unusual for me to be around family's house and knowing that there were bones in garages and under houses, under beds, stored in various places, hidden from the authority. And I knew it was unusual, but it became normal. And I guess <clears throat> when we got a little bit older, as you get older, you, you learn your own identity and your history and your culture. And we all got certain duties to do as we're born. And <clears throat> when we're born, and one of the duties for us was to um, do ceremony and culture, politics, but also take our people back home and rebury them. 
And um, this, this became a job for me um, a few years ago, a long time ago now, when I was out of work, looking for work, and I remember sitting on the floor in my lounge room wondering what the hell I'm going to do because someone like me was, and still a little bit today, I can be a risk in places just because of my identity and my spear that I carry all the time, you know, which frustrates and makes me sad. But um, I remember sitting there on the floor wondering what the heck I'm going to do. And then um, my deadly cousin gave me a call and I caught up and we talked about things and he told me about we've got some work to do and that, that work was to rebury some people and that was, <clears throat> became my job for a few years, um, reburying our people back on country. So, John, the, the, the work of the return, I mean, being, being, being the writer for, for, for the play, and a lot of it being based on Jason's stories, um, obviously, it's very difficult to articulate how you would take um, sitting around listening to, to someone like Jason and all the various stories and um, places and things that he's seen around this particular subject matter. What was, what was the process for you as someone trying to bring this to, to life as a piece, piece of writing? Where, where did you start with, with, with that particular process? Um, yeah, good question. I, um, I just, just want to start, I just want to acknowledge the Kaurag people up here on uh, Thursday Island uh, in the Torres Strait. Um, I'm just actually heading up to Saibai Island, where all my family's from, um, for, for a film. Um, but um, I just want to acknowledge, you know, all of you there tonight and, um, you know, thanks for coming out on a cold, what I hear is a cold night in Melbourne. <laughs> I, I, I think, you know, when, when I think for me, really, it, the the key thing for me was just to listen, really. It's very uh, a simple thing, really, is just to listen. And so I would just listen to Jason. I'd spend a lot of time with Jason. We'd just get in a room for uh, for a few hours, I think, bro. Um, <laughs> and, yeah. and, 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 and just listen. So for me, like, I, I suppose it was, it was a very sort of... Um, it was something I didn't know a lot about, like I'd, I'd heard of, but, like, I was just, like, the first thing for me was, like, I'd, I'd known Jason for a while, but I, I never knew he did this work. And I just, I, I, I didn't know how this young black man carried this weight and how do you be in the world carrying that weight. Like, I had no idea how he did that. And, you know, I was really... Um, yeah, just really interested to 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 learn about that and and how he walked in these worlds 
you know, and um, yeah. So for me, I just I did a lot of listening. I we we consulted um, with people work other people as well working in repatriation, and it just just listened and then also you know research and um, a lot of um, research as well and, and and read and just so just like as a writer you're just sort of you know listening 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 and you know that the challenge with a story like this is okay all of these stories how do you actually like tell a story for theater that's a kind of you know hour and a half experience in a in a theater space uh, yeah, I remember you, you saying um, when we spoke a few weeks ago that you would do all that intensive listening, and then you would actually go away and just write bits of writing for yourself to to try and digest and, and make sense make sense of it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that was the thing for me too, I guess, because you know, like reading reading research too, and and you know, it's it's, it's a really uh, a really, you know, dark history and you're reading things that it's, you know, it's all written by, you know, well-to-do white men, like a very, that that was it, like, you know, that, that was the words, that was all of these experiences through that lens and, you know, and, and you know, the very difficult stories and stuff to read and I think for me too it was just like a, there was a whole process involved in that and for me to, I guess, kind of process stuff as well and just in myself because like, I just had to just, like I didn't even know how it was sitting with me. I, I, I was curious like how Jason had worked in this world. I didn't know like how all of these stories were sitting with me but just had to kind of just let it sit and then, you know, would I find myself just writing responses to things just for myself, not to necessarily share with the team. And, you know, those would just be writings or they just might be scenes as a response to something, you know, and, and not knowing, like just going here, I I don't even know, you know, like it's, um, but I think it was just sort of being able to trust in that process and that that, that was the incredible thing for me is to be in this kind of um creative uh, team to to allow this kind of process to just, you know, kind of have, have its time and and allow it to kind of, um, you know, allow us all to digest digest it and, and come, keep coming back, keep keep sort of working on it. Kimberly, before we get to, to your work, you came back from uh, from Europe on, on Sunday. And then you pretty much went and straight and saw, saw the return itself at, at the Malthouse. You're someone that is um, uh, intellectually, emotionally and professionally connected in this space. What, what sort of uh, reaction did you have to the play? Um, I was saying before it was quite a visceral kind of reaction actually because I'd, you know, yeah, literally hopped off the plane about four days before and I'd been um, over in Europe researching our cultural material, southeastern cultural material in um, Switzerland and London and, you know, had come across ancestors there as well 
Um, and so, yeah, it was, you know, I, f- I felt it and I, I, I completely connected to the character, um, to many of the characters because I, I live I live that work um, and working in a museum and working in the space of um, research and uh, repatriation as well, um, it felt very, very familiar <laughs> to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, very familiar, yeah. No, I, I, can, I can imagine. Um, and as, you know, you were, you were saying, Jason, and, and, and as you've alluded to, um, Kimberly, that so many of these remains, uh, they're everywhere, you know, um, some of them may have indeed been stored in this building when um, the museum used to be here. Um, they are, like you said, in people's garages, under people's beds, but they're also in institutions, um, Kimberley. And, and there is a big movement now around um, this thing we call repatriation um, around the world, both domestically and overseas. Um, tell us about the work that, that you do in your day-to-day life to repatriate some of these items back to where they belong? Um, I should say, you know, this this has been happening before me and it was really led by many people, you know, Jason included, um, for, for decades. And it kind of really, I think, the, the push for Melbourne institutions like Melbourne Museums Victoria and um, University of Melbourne, Freemasons, um, like the Freemasons, um, other institutions that had remains, um, you know, the push around 1985 mm. um, really came out. And um, so it's been happening since then. And Melbourne Museum has been repatriating since then um, as well. So many people have been been leading this space. Um, I, I'm sort of just starting to enter into this space. Like I've been working uh, as a curator in collections for a, a quite a long time now and I've been going to international collections to connect, first and foremost, to connect to the cultural material of our ancestors that are stored and kept in these collections overseas, um, to understand the context of where they are, how they got there, um, the, the curator or the keeper's connection to them and then to start conversations around, well, how we might get them home or... Um, loan them or, you know, building these relationships that gets to that end point. So a lot of my work um, is about building these relationships and understanding the context um, of, of the cultural material, which has been my focus. But, you know, there's obviously this this ancestor, um, and I do believe like they speak to us um, and come to us in different ways and stories come to us in different ways. And these histories certainly show themselves in collections. Sometimes there's there's objects that I've may have been around for years, and then all of a sudden it'll it'll kind of come out. Um, and and like this ancestor in Switzerland, you know, I'm going to now work with Cultural Heritage Council of Victoria, and you know, with the um, the you know AATSIS and and the different kind of bodies that um, organisations I should say um, that bring home the bodies. Um, yeah, to get that ancestor home. Yeah. Let's let's skip back to. The, the beginning of this very sort of macabre process, this macabre process of collecting skulls, um, bones more broadly, um, sending them overseas, having them in private collections like the one in Switzerland was, am I correct? Yeah, that was in, it came from a private collection and it's in the museum now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe 
Jason, we've spoken about this before. What started that practice? What was it about the colonial mindset that saw that as a thing that needed to be done or this or whether you know what was the value in it for them to to start this practice of uh removing remains off country oh jeez <clears throat> yeah they're fascinated by us because we are we are the oldest culture on the planet and through um crazy theories I'm, we're not meant to be here on stage. And I guess the human beings at that time, they wanted to get as much evidence of us because they believed we were the link back to the start of time. And colonisation was brutal here. Brutal. You know, we're still carrying the trauma of that today. And today, there are laws that protect us as human beings. But back in early colonisation, we had no one looking after us. And what evil people did, they went into our cemeteries and dug us up. And they spread our people around this country and around the world. And we connected through land through spirituality and through being, you know? And, you know, our place on earth goes back so far. We go back tens of thousands of years. And that's part of my family. So that blood... That memory is inside me today. And we're told to ignore our feelings sometimes. Ignore the past and memories which are in our blood. But I wasn't taught that. I was taught to connect to who I am. And once you connect to that, you're, you're awakened and you're open to see and feel and hear things, you know? And everything from our people has an energy. And that energy has a connection. And... I don't speak on behalf of everyone, only me, you know. But that energy connects with me. So, you know, you walk around the city, you go to museums or other institutions, and you feel this enormous weight 
you feel this and, and hear this sound and energy and, you know, do you block it out? Do you ignore it? Go crazy? Or you do something about it, you know? And all I'm doing and everybody else is doing what we do as people. And that's connecting to our bloodline and connecting our, uh, ourselves to our culture and to our land. And fragments of country have been taken. Our spirits have been taken and are spread all around the world. And what we do, like a vacuum, is get all those pieces and bring them back home. And it's like us as human beings. We go through life and we get lost sometimes. And we go missing. But what we're yearning for is to come back to some type of centre. Come back to who we are, you know? And what our people have, we have the gift of life. We are the key to everything. And what we want to do in doing this work is bring back all of us back to country to bring us everything back to centre. Because um, right now, and it's been like this for a long time, things are unstable. You feel it. When you walk on the land, in your conscience, your spirit, you look at the sky, you know, the heat, the cold, the water, you know, animals, everything. It's all out of sync and stressed out, you know? So we, what we want to do is bring everything back to centre. And ultimately, which I don't want to sound cheesy, but it's to bring back to some type of peace. And so we do this for you too. So to, to build on what you were saying, <clears throat> Jason, you're saying that like, we're not supposed to be here on this stage um, because we're not supposed to exist. Um, that's not just some sort of throwaway line. That is actually something that the colonial government of Victoria did in the day. They actually had a half-caste act that removed half-castes away from full bloods to make sure that there was no um, mixing between the two so people couldn't find their culture, learn their culture, find out the old ways, the traditional ways of us living um, our traditional lives with the idea that the, the old people, the full bloods, would eventually die out and the half-castes would actually breed into the population. And every now and then some people might tan up a little bit better than others during summer, but ostensibly the, the, race, is, the race is gone. Um, there was a, also, with, with the, the, the collection of our people, and I might, might throw this one to you, to you John, and, but by all means, anyone else chip in. There was the, the idea and the, and, the, and the science of eugenics um, around it. And John, it used to be a way 
of um, uh, collecting bones and, and measuring skulls and other fragments as a way of somehow embedding in the, the, in, in the culture and in the mindset that uh, Europeans were somehow um, superior to, to, to First Nation, Nations people. Through your research and, and listening, listening to the people that you spoke to, what did you learn about that element of it all? Yeah, well, it was exactly that, you know, like it was <clears throat> it was the white man, you know, being the superior um, of all beings, um, you know, and, 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 you know, coming up with theories to reinforce uh, this kind of vacuum of ideas that these white men were having and the conversations they were having with each other. Uh, about the rest of the world and where they sat. And, um, you know, I, I think too it was interesting because it was sort of like a time where people were moving away from, I guess, understanding of the world and the place that they're in from sort of um, cosmology and, and religion to going, oh, everything can be measured. Everything is science. You know, everything can... You can place the measurement on it. You can place a label on it. You can categorise it. You can place it in a sort of um, hierarchy or, or whatever you want, and that this is how you understand the world. And so these guys were, I think at the time from what I was reading, were kind of like rock stars really. Like they would have, you know, that they would pack out like Melbourne Town Hall, town halls right across the country and, and talk about their theories and particularly these guys from Melbourne, you know, and, um, you, you know, and people would would come in to listen listen to them and um, pack out the town halls, and um, you know, so there was, it, yeah, yeah, they they were seen as these. Um, I think guys with just this different way of 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 looking at the world, and um, you know, but 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 you know, it was a very thin veil that just kind of um, not even really that thin of a veil, but, you know, it was highly discriminatory and, you know, the, the, the science turned out to be rubbish. It was even questioned at the time, um, you know, but these things are facts and, you know, people like these guys, they love to say facts and, you know, because it, 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 it's a fact it can be measured. And why is it a fact? Because I said it's a fact, because I said it's measurable, because I say these things, so therefore it is. And no regard to Indigenous people, where Indigenous people are coming from, the knowledge, all of that, because in, in their system, their very narrow science system is purely based on a physical thing, nothing about spirituality, nothing about connectedness, all about separation and breaking it into bits and measuring those bits and holding kind of dominion over those bits. And, um, you know, so they're, they're just completely different in that way and had no idea of themselves, let alone others. Um, but, you know, but had the power and influence to then, you know, perpetuate some pretty horrible things. Kimberly, you work for for and with organisations, institutions that have built their reputations on some of this work, um, that, are, that have 
you know, built, like I said, the, you know, rock stars back in the day that, um, you know, did some of this work and, and were lauded, uh, lauded across the place. As, as a First Nations person, how difficult is it for you to work in and around that space, knowing that an institution like the um, Museum of Melbourne or Melbourne Museum was involved in, in some of this work back in the day? Um, how confronting is that f- for you working in spaces like that? Um, yeah, it's it's hard. Like it's it's definitely like a um, like you know talking about heaviness, carrying a heaviness, and I do feel that. And I felt that um, coming back from Europe this time more deeply, actually, um, maybe because it's sort of been three years of of COVID and then heading back out there and and um, you know, revisiting some of these cultural materials and ancestors that are still in these places. Uh, working for Melbourne Museum, um, it, there, there's a heaviness, you know, within the collection. There, I came across a letter a few years ago, um, which the museum know about and it's public record, so I'll talk about it. Um, but it was from the, the director of Melbourne Museum in 1902, Baldwin Spencer, who sent out a letter to the um, chief commissioner of the colony um, at that time requesting that the police, um, you know, that the police colony um, collect, quote, Aboriginal skeletons, skulls, body parts and weapons. Um, And, you know, then from that moment on, we see a huge increase in the registration of um, ancestral remains and... Um, cultural material um, for, for Melbourne Museum. Uh, and, I mean, this is just one, this is the tip of the iceberg. This is this is common throughout Australia and throughout the world. So they're heavy histories. They're hard, but also I do think, I, I believe that I'm, I'm there for a reason. Mm. Um, and I have the motivation to uh, change that and to, you know, maybe not reconcile it, but, like, be there for the ancestors that are still at the museum, even though, you know, really it's the Cultural Heritage Council that take care of that now for Victoria, for Australia. But be there spiritually and culturally, be there for the objects and be a conduit for community to be able to come in and and see cultural material. Uh, And I think that's a really important role. Um, Yeah. yeah. I think we should touch on the work that you're doing as part of the Rising Festival. Um, and um, specifically the curation you're doing um, around a thing called uh, Moving Objects, where you're getting um, artists from all sort of backgrounds to come in and and sit with some of the museum's um, collections. Can you just tell us about that a little bit? Because um, I spoke to Lou Lou Bennett, Dr Dr. Lou Bennett, um, a couple of weeks ago, who's got a performance coming up. Um, Tell us us about that, because when we talk about repatriation, we're not only talking about um, you know, mortal remains. We're talking about all sorts of cultural, significant, culturally significant things. What was the challenge that you set for some of the artists to sit with some of those, some of those artefacts? Yeah, I think when we talk about, we consider repatriation. You know, it's and we're saying we're talking about the word repatriation and return and restitution, and it's actually about going home. It's about a journey. You know, these these objects and these ancestors have been on on many journeys, and it's it's sort of part of this journey um, is, is going back home. Um, and 
moving objects came out of, I, I have two hats. I work in cultural um, heritage and, and museums, but I also work in contemporary Aboriginal art. And it's this sort of very, um, you know, fluid space of, of culture and working with mob um, that I love. And uh, I'm really passionate about the, the way that Aboriginal artists um, can work in museums and, and recontextualise and reframe cultural material. And so it came out of, moving objects came out of that thinking. And when I started with Rising um, a couple of years ago, and I'm still at the museum as well, I sort of brought the two together. And... Um, Smart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Make it work, you know, and like they were, they were both really into it. And it's also about, you know, contemporary, like our, our objects, they might be old um, and the ancestors might have made them, but they're just as relevant now. Um, and so, yeah, I invited eight artists um, and an art centre to come in and to not necessarily also connect to the cultural material. That, that's all the Aboriginal artists wanted to go into, you know, that space of connecting to their ancestors' material. But I also want to, you know, continue this project and open it up to the rest of the museum. I'm very interested in Aboriginal artists, you know, critiquing and working with colonial material or the scientific material of birds and, and that kind of thing. Um, we don't always have to just sort of work within that Indigenous cultural material space. But... Um, yeah, so it's, it was, I developed a framework where it was about um, regeneration, disruption and re renewal. And so looking at ways to regenerate knowledge, regenerate connection, um, to disrupt the coloniality of, of the museum of, of collecting histories, and then to renew these, these spaces and to renew the story of, of the object. Um, and yeah, I worked with lots of deadly artists and Lou was one of them and we're actually presenting her work um, in Bendigo Wednesday night if anyone wants to come to Bendigo and then um, we've sold out for the Melbourne one Friday night. Um, but uh, Lou worked um, with Jaja Warang material and the stone tools and has written a whole new piece of music um, in response to this experience. And so it was about sustained access to the, to the collections working with the artists and then them responding with new work. Too, too cool. Very, very, very cool. Um, so much of the work, and look, we're going to take some questions um, from, from the audience, just the least we can do for you. Um, um, after, probably after this little discussion that, that we have now, everyone on this stage um, is a storyteller. Everyone that is also involved in repatriation are also storytellers. Um, Jason, let's 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 start start with you. We seem to be living in a in a moment in history now where there seems to be a, a wider and greater audience for hearing the the truth and the hard stories that are behind some of the issues that First Nations people um, confront every day. Um, as a storyteller, what's what's your sense of where we are at the at at, at this particular point in time in terms of changing things through story, because I'm a firm believer that the way we change things is through story. Um, where do you think we sit right now in terms of having an audience but also having stories to tell? Mm. Is there an equilibrium there? Yeah, I guess see ourselves as peacemakers too, you know, not storytellers, peacemakers. Um, um, where we're at... Well, the world wants to, f you can feel it. This country and the world, it's, it's strange, like, in a way, like, 
you think of history and you think of like, in time, you think of our mob going back hundreds and thousands of years and you think of everyone else, you know, so many thousands of years, you know. But as, I guess, as we are today, you know, we just started using a computer a few years ago, right? And telephones and modern cars and, you know, what I'm trying to say is we're, we're, like, we're still learning, you know what I mean? We're still growing. And it, I realise how immature sometimes human beings are, you know? And I think the world has got to a time where they want to grow up. They want to turn the page. Turn the page in life. And there seems to be um, an appetite to connect with a long history um, because of a wanting and connecting with our people and giving back with what is ours because here's an opportunity to turn the page. And some old older traditional, or I don't know how to use that word, old ways, they're locked into old policy and legislation. And it's outdated, you know, it's really outdated. So what the world and this country, I feel that, not everywhere, but there is a change. People are wanting to grow. And repatriation, giving back, coming back to home, centre, is what people are wanting to do. They want to move on. But to move on, we've got to address some things of the, which is the past, but it's with us now. So many people are willing to have those difficult discussions now which is a good thing, right? John, what's, what's, what's your sense of it? Do you, do you feel like we're at a particular point in time now where we can really start opening up to open ears, for want of a better term, telling people about our stories and that there's an appetite for not only hearing them but also doing something about the, the, the trauma and, and, the, and the, the, the awful things that have been done in the name of colonial governments and in the name of individuals? What's, what's your sense of it all? Um, yeah, definitely. I, um, you know, I think there's a, a growing awareness of we're, we're, we're all robbed as a country for not knowing these stories and we all need this healing, whether we know it in the front of our minds or, or deep in our spirit. And, you know, I, I, I did a show with an old Shearer, uh, old Aboriginal Shearer up in Narromine in Western New South Wales, and he spoke about his story of shearing out through that river country out west. And he remembers being told about the rivers 
running red out there. And he worked for a lot of farmers in that region, shearing sheep with his brothers. And we did a show at an RSL. It was packed out on a Friday night in the middle of a drought in Western New South Wales. It was packed out with farmers. And all these guys who'd never been to the theatre before, never seen, never didn't know what theatre was and came to hear this show. And I watched this old man step into the light and speak his truth. And everyone there, I, I was watching the audience because he was telling it how it was. And he was there with his peers saying what his experience was as a black man living there. And people like old white farmers were c coming up in tears afterwards. And they felt a deep, the people that had felt a deep sense of shame had heard things that had happened and, you know, were living in these communities parallel but in separate worlds. And, you know, it struck me that we are keep, we keep getting pushed apart. People want to push us apart. And, you know, people have a need for a conversation and, and that's, that's what filled that place and was this need to have conversations and to have truthful conversations that uh, uh, have politics separated out of it. Because if, when, when politics is in it, it just gets kicked around and, and there's many uh, competing forces and, you know, money which drives all of those kind of um, thoughts and things like that. But people just want to sit with each other and share these conversations and, and I think that's kind of... Uh, you know, I, 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 I can feel that more and, and you know, I, I, I think that that's, that's you know, pe people feel that. And Kimberly, what do, you, what do you make of it all? What do you think we are in terms of the people being willing to, to hear these stories and to, to do something about rectifying some of the past wrongs? Yeah, I think, I think there is a, um, a more of a consciousness uh, around colonial histories, around maybe in the museum context, you know, repatriation and, and that it's not right for museums to keep cultural material, to keep ancestral remains. I think what John, you know, was talking about then and, and Jason, you know, what they've done with the return and, and the power of art, the power of contemporary practice, engaging with these historical um, either cultural materials or histories or museum spaces is so important um, because it is about sharing these histories. No one, you know, not many people know about the fact that museums robbed graves um, or employed people to go out and collect bones or even collect, you know, alive people and kill them. Um, and these, these are real histories. And the historical material that we have in these museums are often associated, you know, intrinsically to these histories as well. Um, and, and these are the burdens to bear, you know, of, of our community and, and these institutions. So it's really, you know, it's so important for these stories to come out and for, you know, the, the return is just such an incredible example of, of the power of this storytelling that's also in a, held in a quite a... Um, appropriate and, and, 
you know, safe sort of way because they are very hard histories. They're very hard stories to hear. They're traumatic. They're violent. Um, And it's it's really important that people start to understand this um, and what these spaces mean for our people and why it's so important for... um, you know, Aboriginal people to be working in these spaces, to have agency in these spaces, for the objects to have agency as well with community um, and for that to be supported. Well, we have um, about 12 minutes left for uh, any questions from the floor. So um, uh, the roving staff here from the wonderful Wheeler Centre, if you have a question, just put your hand up and um, they'll hand you a microphone and uh, you can ask this esteemed panel um, any questions that you like within reason. Hello. Uh, I have a question relating to the show. Uh, I saw it a, a week or so back and um, you know, very, very powerful piece and very impressive to be able to present such heavy work in so coherent a fashion. There was a bit towards the end where, and I'll try to say this without spoilers, a couple of the actors were talking with remains and I remember thinking it was odd that they were speaking English because surely that wouldn't make sense. And then I remember thinking later on, maybe the implication is that they had lost the language that those people who are those remains would have spoken. And I remember thinking that was a powerful thing and it might have been more powerful to have been said directly, but then in considering that, in realising that, that actual time spent in empathy was what was needed to really let it sink. So I I guess I wanted to ask, what was the process around what you directly explain to, uh, you know, a a white fella audience to, to to be direct when it comes to such really powerful material? What did the process deciding what to explain to them directly and what to leave out for those who do the work to consider the implications. Yeah. Do you want to go, John, or I can respond to this? You can go, bro. Yeah. Simply spirits. You know, we've got a responsibility to the old people. And there's protocols when, when communicating with culture. And we... We didn't want to tie this story to one mob or to one language group because in doing so, there is a huge amount of protocols that we must follow to do that, you know? So we were conscious of when it comes to language on... Um, uh, song and so on that we didn't want to connect it to one particular group because one there's a lot of protocols involved but also the power of language if we use our language in a, an environment that's maybe not ceremonial safe there could be consequences to that. And um, as a cultural person, spiritual person, I definitely don't want to get (laughs) none of that 
um, cons- bad, bad consequence, you know? So that was a reason why we didn't use lingo in a lot of moments within the story. So right, John? Yeah, and, and I guess just to say too, like, because it, it wasn't a single story and we were quite conscious about this too, like it's a story that's happened, you know, like Kimberly's spoken about, what Jason's spoken about, you know, it's a story that's happened across the country. And so we 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 wanted audiences to to understand that, that it is a, you know, it's it's not one story with just one mob. Any other questions? I guess, uh, you know, the, the, what f- people might be wondering, you know, why bring them back home? You know, why, why, why do it, you know? Apart from coming back to centre and so on, you know? Right across this country, there are, you know, we are connected to country everywhere, every centimetre of this country. And within that, those centimetres or within those um, areas, We've got tribes and clans and nations and so on, you know? And everything in our country is alive. Everything in this country of ours has a song. You know, it's a language. And we have, in ceremony, we connect our song line. And when we do that in the right place, there's a magic about it. You know what I mean? And what has happened through history, a lot of colonial history, that was taken away from us, which has left us hollow. So we get our things back to our country, wherever we are, to make us whole, to make us stronger mentally and spiritually and physically, so we can um, continue as who we are. Because the studies and everything was shaped before, you know, people had superior motives here and some of the, and seen things as, as inferior. And they wanted to use this position um, to determine who we are. And, you know, imagine, imagine everyone in the world being determined their identity by mad scientists. We've been, that human right of us wasn't given to us. Others done that. And it's left us in a pretty vulnerable state. So what we've done, we hold on to and grab culture. And sometimes our culture that we grabbed on in the early, long, you know, so many years ago, we'd be connecting to different culture that wasn't ours on our our land. You feel what I'm saying? We might be connected to Northern Territory when we should be Murray River mob, you know? So we're connected to different places which, you know, 
has the ramifications of that. So it's important that we get not only our people, but also our, our um, artefacts back to country. Because this is what it does. It makes not only our country whole, but it makes us whole also. And I remember, um, I remember that barks, these barks come from um, Britain, London. And they, had to, that, they went back after a fight, which was quite sad and frustrating. But I'll never forget when we seen the barks, they were connected to my country. And as soon as I seen those barks, me and our family, we watched it and studied it. And then that following weekend, we went out in the bush, cut down the barks and started etching what we seen. You know what I mean? So these is the reasons why it's important that we get things from all around the world. We get these pockets of memory. Well, I said at the start, those, those connections, it's important that we get them back to make us whole again, you know? And that's a big reason why we do it. Because also, um, in our culture, like I say, there's no full stop in our story. We keep going. And in our country, we're, we go back to our, our place and then we go into a, a cultural place. And then we come back in a different way. And I know when I'm on my, my own country, oh, it's electric. You know what I mean? It's really electric. I sit there and, you know, let myself go. And let yourself go, you're going into some, so many different places of history, you know? And this is what, the reasons why we've got to bring those voices and we've got to bring out things back home. So, uh, yeah. just, I guess just from a, a purely visceral sense. Sorry, I probably went on a bit there, sorry. No, no, you're right. <laughs> um, just, just in closing, just from a purely visceral sense, Kimberly, the fact that there is one of our ancestors locked away somewhere in a place like Switzerland, so far, far away from home, just that by itself is a tremendously, tremendously sad state of affairs. And just so from a basic principles of what is right and what is wrong, that's why we must continue to do this not only for our ancestors, but for ourselves and for the wider community. Because all we're trying to do as people here is add value to our community, whether it's black, white or brindle. There's a question there somewhere. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, that must have been so moving. Yeah, yeah, it, it was. Um, and it's hard. Like, it's still with me. It will always be with me um, until I can get them home um but I think you know what what you just said Jason around um coming back and and being whole and being centered and the strengthening the cultural strengthening that is you know that happens for our people 
when not only our ancestors are returned and reburied on country to where they're, you know, they should be, but also for our cultural material, our ancestral belongings, you know, to be returned. Um, and there's, you know, repatriation and return is, um, is complex. Some communities actually want some of their objects to stay in the museum because that's where they feel like they're going to be cared for until they get their own keeping place. Mm. Some communities want them returned to their keeping place. Um, some communities don't want some of their um, ceremonial material back because, you know, around um, uh, different protocols and different things have been broken and it's not safe for the community to have them back, uh, you know, if they're, if they're secret, sacred materials. So it's complex. It's nuanced. Um, but, you know, I think that the benefit of having our cultural material home outweighs the benefit of them being in those museums for, you know, our history to be told. And that's where art comes in. And that's where, you know, like this play and, and the work that I do with artists and, and the work that, you know, many other people have been working with artists and museums for a long time. It's not something I've invented or, you know, it's been going on for a really long time. But the, the power of community access and the power of um, artists and contemporary practice in speaking to these histories and these objects um, is is so important as well. Yeah. Well, the um, the return is playing at uh, the partner for tonight's, tonight's event, the Malthouse, until the uh, 4th of June. So if you want to get along and have a look at that, um, uh, I thoroughly recommend it. Um, please thank uh, tonight's guest, uh, Jason Tamaru, John Harvey and Kimberly Moulton. <laughs> Thanks very much for coming out. Very brave, conscientious people. Thank you. You've been listening to Daniel James in conversation with John Harvey, Jason Timaru, and Kimberly Moulton. This event was presented in partnership with Rising and Malthouse Theatre, recorded on Tuesday the 31st of May 2022 at the Wheeler Centre. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.